Good morning. How's everybody this morning? Good. An early Merry Christmas to one and all. Welcome here. Uh, can everybody hear me? Last time I was up here, it was a little light, and we couldn't, uh, everybody couldn't hear too well. We're okay now? All right. Before I get started, uh, I'm recognizing this is the, first, the last Sunday of Advent here for us, right before uh, Christmas Day itself. Uh, we'll be talking about the love in Christ's coming to earth. And I believe uh, most of the scriptures that we use so far during this Advent season were all from the Gospel of Luke. Today is going to be a little different. The text I'd like to look at is a verse that everybody knows, everybody knows by heart. So uh, please don't get up and walk out on me. Don't tune me off, turn me off, tune me off. Uh, I realize that everybody is very familiar with the scripture. And I know that's a real danger in itself when we're so familiar with the scripture, so familiar with it that we uh, kind of lose the real meaning behind it. We're so familiar with it that we lose the deep, deep treasures that are in these pieces of scripture. And again, I know uh, being up here, going over this verse, I won't do it complete justice by any means, but hopefully by the time we're done, we'll see it a little clearer We'll refresh our understanding of it a little bit, and maybe we can see it in context to what it was, uh, how it was written in, in the book. So let's open in prayer first, and then we'll get into the scriptures. Father, open our eyes to see your love more clearly than ever before. May your great love for us forever burn in our hearts, Lord burn in our minds for the purpose of bringing you glory, Lord, today, every day, and unto eternity, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I cannot think of a more profound or more deep or heart-wrenching example of the love that is in Christ's first coming to this earth than that is found in John 3.16. The gospel in a nutshell and isn't that what Christmas is all about? This message, one of hope, one of peace, one of joy, and that of love, that is found in the good news, the gospel, the good news of great joy. Please turn in your Bibles, if you can, to John chapter 3. That's going to be on page 1,262 in the Pew Bibles. That's John chapter 3. We'll start off by looking at verse 16. John 3:16. Get ready to read now. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believed in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now it's your turn. Would you repeat it with me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Thank you. We all know this verse. We all know it by heart. But let's look at, again, the context of it. Any verse that we take and look at it alone, we're not doing it due justice. So let's look at what led up to it a little bit. Let's look at who the writer was, who he was writing to, who's actually talking in the text, 
who the speaker is talking to and maybe some of the customs or the cultural influences that might have been in the minds of the people that day and the verses before that lead up to this and somewhat after it and maybe even what is not written or that is not in the text can help us out a little bit. Before I get started with that though, I'd like to look at some of the uh, gospel accounts and compare some of the general observations from the different gospel accounts that lead up to this. That might help us understand this a little bit. When we think about Jesus' birth and we understand how Matthew portrayed it, this ex-tax collector, the left at the despised occupation to follow Jesus, he was addressing basically Jewish readers, a Jewish audience. We see Matthew emphasizes the long-awaited king, a royal descendant from Israel's great King David. So the genealogy in Matthew we see goes back to David. Matthew also is a writer that includes the Magi, seeking one born king of the Jews. So Matthew, we see, presents Jesus as Christ the King. Christ the King. Look at Mark, Gospel of Mark. He's a cousin of Barnabas, a close companion of Peter, and he writes basically to a Roman audience. We see in this Gospel there are explanations of Jewish culture as we read through it. It's a fast-moving, action-packed gospel appearing, appealing really to the Roman mindset and culture of that day. But there's no mention in it of Jesus' genealogy. And maybe it wasn't needed here because we're seeing Jesus is presented to a culture that was filled with slaves as a suffering servant. And who would care about the genealogy of a servant? So Mark really presents Jesus to us as the servant, Christ the servant. Now when we look at Dr. Luke, now Luke was a Greek writer, and he's writing to a Gentile audience, and we see in him the tenderness of Christ. Jesus' interaction with the women of that day and it was much more prevalent in this gospel than is written in the other gospels. The miracles of healing that he did, were given much more detail and emphasis, some of which are only recorded by Luke. These truly identify Jesus with humanity. So it's no wonder that the genealogy here in, in, of Jesus in Luke's gospel goes all the way back to Adam, portraying Jesus as the Son of Man. Jesus, the Son of Man. Then we come to the Gospel of John now where we are this morning. The apostle here is described five times in the gospel as a disciple whom Jesus loved. This was the last gospel written, and it was written to strengthen the faith of the believers and also to encourage unbelievers to saving faith by believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John emphasizes the deity of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Jesus, the Son of God. When I think of genealogies, I think of going back to the beginnings, right? That's what we look at. So you think of what kind of genealogy does John mention in, in the gospel, in his gospel, if any, 
And we don't have a lot of son ofs or fathers of or anything else, but we have this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things that came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. John 1, verses 1 through 3. You see, John portrays Christ as the ever-existing one. He always was. He's eternal. He is the revelation of God. John refers to Jesus in his other writings as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and here as the creator of all things. Jesus, the God-man, the Son of God, the Son of God. Let's turn to John chapter 3 again, which is where our text is today, and understand what John was explaining who Jesus was in this part of the text. I'll repeat the verse again. For, jo- for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This verse follows and may be part of a conversation that Jesus is having. And at this point he's having this conversation with an unbeliever. Look at verse 1. Chapter 3 verse 1. Who is Jesus talking with? Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now Nicodemus' name means victor over the people. He was a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council of the Jewish people. It's made up of about 70 members. And this council was responsible for religious decisions of the day, and also under the Romans, civil rule too to some extent. Now Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews and not just a teacher of Israel. Verse 10 indicates that the teacher of Israel, emphasizing the prominent teacher that he was of the day. So Nicodemus here comes to Jesus at what time of day? We know the story, right? This man came to Jesus by night. He came at night, Nick at night. For those who know Nickelodeon, okay. But why did John include this time of day? It doesn't really tell us in the text why. I understand that this meeting took place sometime during the summer months, so maybe it was very, very hot that day and the evening was a little more comfortable, a little cooler. Maybe he felt that Jesus would be less busy during that time of the day, so let's talk to him at night may have a, more of a private conversation that way. And many of the rabbis of this time period that did teach their students at night. Or maybe, and even more likely, that he was afraid of what the other Pharisees would think and did not want to risk being seen with Jesus. But regardless of the reasons for the night meeting, we look at this, that Nicodemus seeks out Jesus. He goes to him. He addresses him as rabbi and makes a statement, we know you have come from God as a teacher. 
Because no one can do the signs or miracles you do unless God is with him. We see Nicodemus verbally concedes to the fact that Jesus was a God-sent teacher. We know you have come from God as a teacher. But he didn't realize he was God who came to teach. And the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 3 has Jesus answering him and said, Wait a second. Jesus is answering a, a statement that Nicodemus made. What, what question did Nicodemus give Jesus? There doesn't appear to be one. Jesus responds to this statement of Nicodemus with these words. He says, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Where did that statement come from? Doesn't follow the previous basically statements of Nicodemus, does it? It really doesn't. You see, Jesus here is seeing into the heart of this man. This man who came to him by night seeking something. And Jesus responds to this man's heart's need. That's marvelous. That's really wonderful. And isn't it true sometimes of us even today, there are times when, when we not knowing, go to, when we come to Jesus not knowing exactly what we have need of. Of course, we have the problems, we have the list and everything else. But we really don't, need, don't know our own heart's need and, and the application of what God is going to do with these things. Here, Nicodemus' true need is no different than any one of us today. We must be born again. We must be born from above. Now we understand here that the Pharisees of this day, they were waiting, long awaiting, and the Jewish people themselves sought after a coming messianic kingdom. Especially during this time in history when the Romans controlled this area, we see this and understand it clearer with even the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. They were waving the branches and shouting from the crowds, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, save us. The crowds were welcoming Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem, sitting on the foal of a donkey, wanting to set up his kingdom and him as king to overcome the Roman occupation. They wanted this long-awaited kingdom to come. So Jesus is telling Nicodemus what he and Israel was longing for can only be seen and entered into through regeneration. This second birth, that is what needed to enter this kingdom. You must be born again. Not physical lineage at all, not keeping of the law, but the second birth. That's no different for us today. Now in verse 4, Nicodemus says to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Can he? We see here how Nicodemus was having trouble understanding the concept of the new birth. 
He was thinking of earthly or physical things. And being an intelligent man, being an educated man, he knew basically that this was physically impossible, humanly impossible. How can he be born again? But that's the point. That's the point. Being born again is not obtained through human efforts. It's not by human means. It's by God. Verse 5, Jesus goes on to explain how this second birth is done by God. Being born of water and of the Spirit. The spiritual washing and purification of the soul is by the Holy Spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, in verse 6. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said unto you, you must be born again. Verse 8 states, And the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The working of the Spirit in this new birth cannot be seen. It is likened unto the wind when it blows. You can't see it. You can't control it. You can see the results of it, though. The life-changing work of the life-changing work of the Holy Spirit is evident. You'll be able to see it. Now, Nicodemus in verse nine says, "How can these things be?" And Jesus answers and said, Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Now in these first ten verses, we see Jesus answering the heart issues that Nicodemus had even before he asked a question. And then he explained what was lacking and how this change must take place. The next 10 verses between verses 11 and 21 is a discourse on salvation. Verse 11 and 12 talks about the lack of faith and unbelief in Nicodemus. Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, I say unto you, we, we speak of what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I tell you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? We see here in this that it's not the intellect, it's not intelligence that brings understanding. Nicodemus had both of them. He was a scholar. But rather, believing in Jesus in faith, this gives understanding and much more. Notice here that the word believe is used in one form or another about seven times in the verses 12 through 18. It says, believe, believe, believes, 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 believe, and believed. Think it's important? Think it's emphasized? Verse 13 says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus here is claiming to be the one 
and only authority to speak on heavenly matters, for he alone was there and came down to earth from there. Believe his testimony. Believe his witness. Hebrews 1, 2 states this. God in these last days has spoken us to, uh, in his Son. John 6, 33. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And in John 6.51, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. Jesus is the one that came down out of heaven. In the glorious incarnation, feed on him. Feed on his word. Verse 14 says, as Jesus uses a reference that Nicodemus would have been certainly known well. It was a historical event in Israel's history, those 40 years of wandering in the desert. It's recorded in Numbers 21, verses 5 through 9. Here's where the children of Israel were impatient. They were complaining about the food and no water and despised the manner that they had to eat. So what's the Lord do? He sends snakes. He sends serpents among the people that they would, they would get bit. And they have a fiery inflammation and many of them were caused to die from the bite. So what the people do at that point? They come to Moses and say to him, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Intercede for us on our behalf to the Lord that he may remove these serpents from us. So God tells Moses to do what? Make a bronze serpent. Put it on a standard. Put it on a pole. Lift it up. And if anyone who was bit would look at it, Look upon the serpent. They would live. Verses 14 and 15 of John 3 says this. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Jesus here is predicting his death on the cross. And those who would look to the crucified Christ, in faith believing, would be cured from sin's deadly bite and would have eternal life in him. And I went through all this in review and in to bring to the context of what we're talking about today. And that's the love in Christ's first coming to earth. The greatest love story ever to be recorded. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now this time of year, we all exchange gifts for one another. But herein is the greatest gift this world has ever been given. Ever been given. Let's take a look at the giver, the gift, the reason, the recipient, the response, and result. Number one, the giver. Who gave the gift? God, the sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient creator of the universe. He's the giver. He sent Jesus. He gave Jesus. 1 John 4, 9. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. This is how we see God's love. 
it was manifested in the giving of his son. You want to see God's love? Look at the manger. Then look at the cross. In faith believing, you'll be overwhelmed with God's love. The giver is God. The gift. What did God give? His only begotten Son. God's one and only. I really don't think any of us have any idea how costly a gift this was. As a parent who has a son, when I read the Old Testament account of Abraham being tested of God, it kind of chokes me up. In Genesis 22, verse 2, God says, Now take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Uh, Abraham does what the Lord tells him to do. And on the way to the mountain, Isaac speaks to his father, Abraham, and says what? He says, Father, here's the fire, here's the wood, but where's the lamb for the offering? Abraham says, God will provide himself the lamb for the bird offering, my son. Now I realize Abraham had great faith. And I know he believed that God could raise his son from the dead. It tells us that in Hebrews 11, verse 19. And he had the faith that God would keep the promises made to him through Isaac, that the descendants would be as many as the stars of the heaven and the grains of the sand on the beach. And I know that Abraham told the young men who traveled with him on this trip to stay here with the donkeys while I and the lad go ahead of you. And we will worship and return to you. I realize Abraham had great faith. But think of what must have gone through his mind and the mind of Isaac also on the way there. They did this traveling to this place. They start building an altar. They arrange the wood on the altar. He binds his son. He lays him on the altar. He takes out a knife starts to stretch out his hand to slay his only son whom he loved, whom these promises were made to. When the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and says, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And then Abraham sees a ram that was caught in the thickets by its horns and he offered him up as a sacrifice in place of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place. The Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh. What a picture of the atonement here. The substitutionary atonement of Christ's death for us. God provided himself the sacrifice in Jesus Christ.
the babe in the manger, born to die on the cross. What a costly gift. Jesus, the gift. The reason. Love. And herein is agape, love. God's love. That is the sacrificial giving love, expecting nothing in return. In so many of the passages when we speak about love, sacrifice is bound up in those passages. God gave because he loved us. God made the ultimate sacrifice because he loved us. For God so loved the world. Now you look at that phrase, and there's actually a quantitative, almost a numerical-like word in that verse. It's made up of two letters, an S and an O. For God so loved the world. That little word indicates the intensity, the vastness, the greatness, the huge, unmeasurable amount of love God has for us. God so loved the world. Ephesians 2.4 says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us with. The reason? Love. Who's the recipient? It says, For God so loved the world. He loved the world. This evil, sinful, fallen world of humanity. There's nothing in us, there's nothing in the world that would cause God to be attracted to us. We are altogether repulsive, evil, lost, wretched due to sin. There's nothing attractive in us. Yet, God demonstrated his love toward us and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. He loved us because he willed to do it. His, he sovereignly determined to do so. And in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4, 10. He values each and every one of us. He loves each each and every one of us. The recipient of the gift was the world. Sadly, though, did all the world receive it? Did all the world receive the gift? John 1.11 tells us, He came unto his own, and those that were his own did not receive him. And there's many in this world today that won't receive him either. God's gracious gift of salvation is free and only available to whoever believes in Christ. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. John 1, verses 12 through 13 states this, But as many as received him, to them gave ye the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of man, but of God. Have we personally received this gift? 
have we personalized that verse of John 3.16? For God so loved you. For God so loved me that he gave his only son that if you or I believe in him, we will not perish but have eternal life. Have you personalized it? If we've received Christ, if we've been born again, what is our response to this gift? We know the world, is tur- the world that doesn't know him has turned their back on him. But if we've received Christ, what is our response? I'm going to suggest one of many, I'm sure. I'm going to say, live through him in love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, basically, this is a summation of the law and the prophets. Love God, love others, for God is love. 1 John 4, 12, uh, 11 and 12 says this, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has seen God in any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. 1 John 4.19 We love because he first loved us. John 15 verse 13 says this, Greater love has no one than this, that one lays down his life for his friends. Love. The sacrificial giving of oneself for another, expecting nothing in return. We should take up our cross daily and follow him and live in the light of his love. This is the response. Live through him in love. The results. Eternal life. Look at the God-given promises in each of the words. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish. Believers will not perish. Believers will not receive God's final and eternal judgment of an eternity in hell. In utter outside darkness, outside of God's presence. Therefore there is no com- now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 and whoever believes in him will not only not, not perish, but they will have eternal life. Eternal life, a life that will never end. It can't be taken away. It's an eternal existence in perfect glory and holiness in the presence of God. No more sickness, no more pain, no more tears. An eternal life that started the moment we became born again and will transform us when we leave these earthly bodies, when we leave them to behind and continue in a life that will last into eternity in the presence of Almighty God. The result of this gift, eternal life for those who believe. The giver, God, The gift, Jesus. The reason, love. The recipient, the world.
the response lived through him in love, the result eternal life for those who believe in him. The love in Christ's coming to earth is the love of God that he has given his only begotten son, born of a virgin, named Jesus, the spotless lamb of God, born to die on a Roman cross for you and for me, to wash our sins away and regenerate us, being born again, to bring us back into fellowship with the Father through the blood of Jesus, so that we would not perish, but through believing in him have eternal life. Thank God for his love this Christmas season and every day of our lives. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we praise you for your great unmeasurable love for us that you gave Jesus to be our Savior. May we live in the light of your love to reflect your love to the glory and, and your glory to this lost world, to be filled with hope and peace and joy and love. Thank you, Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.